Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Coming to you live from London, I'm Julian Marshall. The US Congress releases a controversial Republican memo alleging the FBI abused its surveillance powers during the 2016 election campaign. That's our top story today. And later in the programme, the growing humanitarian crisis in northern Syria as pro-government forces push ahead with a major military offensive in Idlib the last big rebel-held province in the country. The situation is screaming for a ceasefire. We cannot have conventional warfare in what is essentially a refugee camp. Idlib is densely populated and it is filled to the brim with refugees and the displaced. Also, why we know more now about the Maya of Central America than any other ancient civilization, thanks to laser scans. That's all coming up in this edition of NewsR. But we go first to the United States, where a big head of steam built up this week ahead of the publication today of a hitherto secret Republican memorandum alleging anti-Trump bias at the FBI and the Department of Justice. Mr Trump has long complained about his treatment by federal investigators probing possible collusion between his campaign and Russia to sway the 2016 presidential election. And earlier today, referring to the memo, he tweeted, and I quote, the top leadership and investigators of the FBI have politicised the sacred investigative process in favour of Democrats and against Republicans. Democrats, though, have depicted the memo as misleading and the FBI had publicly warned against publication. But despite that, it was released a few hours ago with Mr Trump's approval and this appraisal of its contents. I think it's terrible. You want to know the truth? I think it's a disgrace. What's going on in this country, I think it's a disgrace. And when you look at that and you see that and so many other things, what's going on, a lot of people should be ashamed of themselves and much worse than that. So what's in this memorandum and does it prove the case, as alleged by the Republican Party and President Trump, that the FBI abused its own powers to spy on the Trump election campaign? I asked the BBC's Anthony Zerka in Washington about its central allegation. Well, the central allegation is pretty much what we thought it was going to be, what it was rumored to be going in, and that was that an essential part of the warrant that was issued in order to surveil a, a, a unpaid foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, Carter Page, in October 2016, was this now infamous uh, Chris Steele dossier. Uh, and what the memo alleges is that Christopher Steele, the former British intelligence agent, was biased against Donald Trump, that he was working for an organization that was funded by the Democrats, uh, that he had expressed anti-Trump sentiment to the FBI or in the Justice Department in his interactions with them, and that he was leaking to the press. And so none of this, the memo says, was presented to this court judge that approved the surveillance, and it should have been. And the fact that it wasn't put out there, uh, that the information could have been biased, uh, shows that the Department of Justice uh, and the FBI were biased against uh, Trump and his campaign from the get-go. Uh, so it's the idea of the, the fruit of a poison tree, where the, the investigation, at least the Carter paid surveillance, started off uh, in an improper way, and that everything that flows from that, the Russian investigation that flows from that, has been tainted by that. So President Trump effectively feels vindicated. I mean, would that be his conclusion? 
Well, I think that's certainly what he's saying. I mean, it's calling it terrible and a disgrace. That's what a lot of Republicans are saying. There were some interesting things in the memo. First of all, the memo says towards the end uh, that this that the investigation didn't start with that Carter Page surveillance order. Uh, that the investigation had been going on for several months based on other things. So that that kind of undermines the the idea that this was an original sin by the FBI and the Justice Department that has tainted the whole investigation. Uh, and Democrats have have countered that this is also cherry-picking information that uh, the, the, you can't say that a, a tangential look at Carter Page, who was, even by the Trump campaign's own admission, uh, a bit player in the campaign, uh, that that could undermine the Russian investigation as a whole and everything that comes from it. The BBC's Anthony Zerker in Washington. A short while ago, I spoke to Congressman Steve Cohen of the Democratic Party, who sits on the House Committee on the Judiciary. The Democrats are planning to release their own rebuttal on Monday. Firstly, his reaction to the decision by the White House to release the memo. It's a shocking series of events because it strains the credibility of our intelligence community. It makes it more difficult for them to operate with intelligence agencies from other nations. And I have read the memo, and I've read the minority memo as well, And if one reads the minority memo, the Democratic memo, they will see that there's nothing at all wrong with what was done to get the FISA warrant and that the Republicans are just doing this to lay information to make it appear to their base that there is some conspiracy against the president, which there is not. And this is the most demeaning and mean-spirited and false and reckless conduct that one could engage in as a government official. And the true import of all of this is that those people, the Trump administration and the Republicans cooperating with them, should be punished and they should be brought to justice because what they're doing is unjust and wrong and misleading the American public. So you don't think that the FBI has any kind of case to answer? According to the memo, the Bureau used an unsubstantiated Democratic-funded research report to obtain a warrant to conduct surveillance on a Trump advisor. You don't think there's a case to answer there? The full information indicates that the information was before the court, that the dossier was paid for and supported by an individual that had an interest in beating Trump and that it was done to hurt Trump, and the court knew that. And that's what the court needed to know. And with that knowledge, they issued the warrant, and they should have. Not the basis for the investigation to start in Russia. It started long before this warrant was issued. It would have gone on anyway. Carter Page has been dealing with Russia since 2013, and the fact is this was not improper. The improper information was given to the court so they could make a intelligent and full knowledge, have full knowledge before they issued the warrant, and they had that information, and the Republican memo did not disclose that. It is intentionally misleading and despicable. So you are saying, are you, that... Uh The court knew that uh, Christopher Steele, the former British spy who prepared this document, the Steele dossier, had an animus against President Trump. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they knew that the parties, that the information was supported by somebody against Trump. Not necessarily Steele, not necessarily, but they knew that there was a disposition and what the disposition was. And I cannot say further than that. But It is clear, and the reason Republicans didn't want the Democratic report dismissed was because they didn't want the public to see the truth. This is not cricket, so to speak. Are you one of those Democrats who believes that uh, President Trump 
is using this memo as a pretext to uh, fire the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein or Special Counsel Robert Mueller? I think I'm one of the Americans who thinks that way. Yes, Trump will do anything to protect himself. He is not for the American system of government, for democracy, for transparency, for due process, the rule of law and justice. He is evil. Those are strong words, Congressman. The truth sometimes has to be said. That was uh, Democratic Congressman Steve Cohen. I've also been speaking to David Ribkin. He served in the Department of Justice under George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan. What does he make of the allegation from Congressman Cohen that this Republican memo is um, slightly selective with the facts and that the court was fully aware of what was behind this request for a warrant? Well, let's see what uh, what the Democrat memo says. But let me say a couple of things. First of all, there's a despicable partisan screed which depresses me. Let's forget about the Mueller investigation. Let's say it doesn't exist. We do have evidence that indicates that a warrant uh, – uh, it's actually technically called an order – was obtained from Fisk for an intelligence surveillance court in a situation where the full information about the facts leading to this dossier was not disclosed. And uh, your, your listeners might appreciate the fact it's not just the motivations of Mr. Steele, not just who was paying him. There's quite a bit of discussion about the fact that he was a very discredited source. He was an FBI informant, was actually terminated by the FBI because he lied to them, okay? He lied to them about a variety of things, including leaking to the media. Now, you would think that in a situation, especially if we're talking about surveilling somebody in the middle of a political campaign that has very special sensitivity, Department of Justice, it's not written down, but has an informal but well-established rule that you don't investigate in or about political campaigns unless absolutely necessary. So there was not full disclosure. Let's wait to see if a Democrat memo to a court. The second question you ask yourself, and the congressman is right, FBI knew since 2013 that Mr. Page has been living in Moscow and uh, had some dealings with the Russians. What he fails to mention is that Mr. Page also collaborated with FBI and helped them expose a couple of Russian agents. But the fundamental question isn't just the circumstances in which this order was obtained, but why do you do it on October 21, 2016, a few critical weeks before the elections? Why couldn't it wait a few more weeks? Why wasn't it done six months earlier? And it's absolutely clear that Steele's dossier is indispensable. This is what, in fact, the memo mentions that uh, Deputy Director McCabe testified in a classified setting that without this dossier, they wouldn't have gotten the warrant. So the dossier was critical. So why was not full information provided to the FISC? And why did they do it on October 21? So you seem to be of the belief that there was some political motivation here. Well, Actually, I don't know if it was a political motivation in a sense that people in the FBI hated Trump for some reason or they were driven by the motives. I'm a lawyer. What matters to me, it was a great deal of procedural irregularity in a context of a very sensitive process that has had some, you know, concerns about its legitimacy by civil libertarians. So you would need to be bent over backwards. You need to over-disclose. We're not talking about getting a warrant and somebody who burgled an apartment and stole something. You have to bend over backwards to continue to defend the legitimacy of this process. All I can tell you, it looks bad. It needs to be investigated. I don't know what people's motives were. But if you combine it with other things, the, the rampant unmasking by senior Obama administration officials, the rampant leaks 
it does look very bad. And my final point would be the very fact, it's an old expression, if you got the law, you argue the law. If you got the facts, you argue the facts. If you got neither, you wave your hands. And my Democrat friends are waving their hands. They're not talking about the merits. They're talking about how evil Trump is and how he wants to do this. He wants to do that. With respect, there's nothing to do with it. What matters is, was the FISA application done properly in accordance with due process and the law? Would you expect heads to roll as a result of this? I would expect a thorough investigation to see whether it was a part of something else who was behind it. Absolutely. It would be utterly irresponsible not to investigate. But and I wouldn't want to fire people summarily because, again, it looks bad, but it's not a definitive disposition of this issue. But for God's sake, let's not pretend that this is some kind of a partisan exercise. That was uh, David Rivkin, who served in the Department of Justice under George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan. Coming up later in the program. We're the Nigerian Women's Bobsled Team. We're the first team from the country of Nigeria. The first team from the continent of Africa. And the first team to be represented in the Winter Olympics in the sport of bobsled in Pyeongchang. That report about the first Nigerians to qualify for the Winter Olympics is uh, coming up in about half an hour's time. The main news headlines from the BBC Newsroom, as you've been hearing, the US Congress has released a controversial Republican memo alleging the FBI abused its surveillance powers during the election campaign. Uh, President Trump says the document reveals a disgraceful story. Leading Democrats say he risks provoking a constitutional crisis. And the US military wants to develop new low-yield nuclear weapons to counter the threat posed by Russia. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsR. A senior United Nations official has warned of a humanitarian catastrophe in northern Syria as pro-government forces step up their military offensive in the rebel-held province of Idlib. Idlib is the rebels' last sizable stronghold in the country. These 200 civilians are already estimated to have been killed, many of them children. Our World Affairs correspondent Richard Gulpin reports. The sound of rescue teams rushing to the scene of yet another airstrike in the northern province of Idlib. This, the last rebel-held province, has long been attacked by Syrian and Russian warplanes. But in recent weeks, the tempos stepped up and pro-government ground forces have also joined in the fight. With thousands of people fleeing, the United Nations humanitarian coordinator for Syria, Panos Mumtsis, is sounding the alarm. We're really extremely worried about the situation on the ground. The province of Idlib has more than 2 million people, half of whom are already displaced from multiple displacement, actually several of them. The latest offensive, and basically we have seen about a quarter of a million additionally newly displaced people, people who fled their homes, basically heading towards the Turkish border. This is really a catastrophe for the people who are living in Idlib. According to the United Nations, many of these newly displaced people are having to survive in squalid makeshift camps. Nadia and her family left everything behind when they fled and are now stuck in a tent with no facilities around them 
in the cold of winter. We have no house, nothing. We even struggle to get food and don't eat properly. We carefully spare each drop of water we have. Are other countries powerless against this? Don't they see all this? The offensive by government troops and their allies backed by air power has made steady progress into Idlib province. They're targeting jihadists and other rebels, thousands of whom retreated here as many parts of the country fell back into government hands. A decisive victory in this last province under rebel control would mean the civil war would be almost over. But civilians are paying a heavy price. At least 11 people were killed earlier this week in an airstrike on a market in the strategic town of Sarakab. An eyewitness who we are not naming for security reasons told us Syrian or Russian warplanes then targeted the hospital where the injured were being taken. The bombing killed three medics and injured six others. The hospital's facilities have collapsed and the water supply is down. It is the only hospital in the area. Many people will be affected. And activists say it's not the only medical facility in Idlib to have been hit. It's not clear what the ultimate objective of the Syrian military and its allies is. So far, they've seized control of several strategic areas in the province. The question is whether they'll push on now to try to win back all of Idlib. That report by the BBC's Richard Galpin. Mayan ruins already abound in Guatemala and these ancient structures, often obscured in dense jungles, stand as testaments to the architectural skills and advanced concepts of design employed by the Maya civilization more than a thousand years ago. But researchers have now found more than 60,000 previously hidden Mayan ruins using laser technology known as LIDAR. And beneath the jungle canopy, they reveal houses, pyramids, palaces, elevated highways and defensive fortifications. And they're describing the find as one of the greatest advances in over 150 years of Mayan archaeology. One of those involved in the project is Thomas Garrison, assistant professor of the Department of Anthropology at Ithaca College in the United States. The most important thing about this survey is the scale of it, because when we think about the Maya, we still have this idea of them being this lost civilization, sort of shrouded in mystery in the jungle. You know, there's a certain romanticism to it, for sure. The fact is, is that we know an awful lot about the Maya, but what the LIDAR does is it really gives us a a complete picture of how they were living in this landscape in a way that's unprecedented, not only for the Maya, but but pretty much any ancient civilization. Because in many regions of the world, Egypt, Mesopotamia, China, the ancient Greeks and Romans, you have all of the modern stuff that we're doing today that obscures all but the most important sort of preserved valued ruins. And here we have the jungle preserving the total landscape of an ancient civilization in a way that we've never seen before. And it proves to be more comprehensive, more extensive, the civilization than previously thought? 
Absolutely. And in, in many different ways, um, in the sheer number of individual structures we see in the landscape, it increases exponentially how many people were probably living in this landscape without putting a specific number on it. I'd say we're talking about three or four times larger than what we would have previously imagined. And then much more connected. We see road systems running through the area. Um, we see extensive, extensive agricultural fields because people needed to feed this huge population. These are all really, really subtle features that we sort of knew that the Maya had because of chance discoveries, but the LIDAR shows us all of it. So what's, what's, what's the picture? What's the overall picture that you now have of that Mayan civilization? I mean, you've already referred to it as being more extensive than previously thought. I mean, it didn't cover, did it, the entire land mass of what is now Guatemala? Well, it's interesting you say that um, because there are differences in the different polygons that we shot. But for example, in the very northern part of Guatemala, right near the border with Mexico, where a French project is working at a site called Nachtun, the LIDAR data in the region surrounding their site, there's not a single piece of elevated terrain that isn't covered with some sort of ancient Maya settlement. But from my own perspective, my piece of the data near where I work uh, at a site called El Zotes, we have this incredible number of defensive features. Warfare and conflict uh, was what sort of defined this region, including a brand new site that we can only describe as a fortress, which isn't something that we really think of with the Maya. So what's next? Um, down to ground level and start digging? Yeah. So um, because of the number of scholars that are involved here and the huge area that's covered, everyone's LIDAR data has different amazing things in it that are sort of dictating our research. So for example, I'm writing a lot of grants with my colleagues to look into these defensive features and, and fortresses and, and see if we can raise the funds to really do a serious excavation and actually figure out what those are about. We see this LIDAR data set as being this stepping stone to totally new questions about the Maya that over the next many decades are going to really change our view of them because we're not spending all of our time in the field thrashing around just trying to look to see where they are. We now know that. So what can we do now? That was uh, Thomas Garrison, Assistant Professor at the Department of Anthropology at Ithaca College in the United States. And um, a reminder that you can uh, listen to NewsHour whenever you like. We've got two editions a day. You can find the latest online at bbcworldservice.com. Uh, better still, sign up for our free download. Just search for BBC NewsHour podcast. Do stay with us, though. For this edition of the programme, a lot more to come in the next 30 minutes. Coming up next, 19 migrants are feared drowned after their boat capsized off the Libyan coast. But first, uh, New Zealand will protect struggling home buyers from the excesses of global capitalism with a ban this year on foreigners from purchasing existing properties. Uh, the new Trade Minister, David Parker, says the move will help an insecure middle class that has been sold out to the super wealthy. The legislation is expected to be passed in the next few months. It aims to dampen runaway house prices that have squeezed many Kiwis out of the market. Critics of the measures say it'll affect a small part of the property sector and won't improve affordability. From Wellington, Phil Mercer 
reports. It's expensive. I don't know if I'll ever be able to buy a house. <laughs> I want to. We're going to crack down on foreign ownership of New Zealand's homes and farms, essentially. We think it's the birthright of people who live and pay tax in your country to have first dibs on your property. In Wellington, prices soared by more than 18% in the year to June 2017. It was basically um, making those hard choices whether make our family larger, you know, have another child or try and get a house because you can't really do both at the same time. It's a bit hard. I look at my children and my, and my family and friends' children and I really, really feel for them because I just believe the market has made it impossible for them to get into the housing. The government wanting to restrict foreign ownership, what mm-hmm. do you think of that? I don't see it's going to make too much difference. They'll find a different way to buy it. Yep, I agree. And while it's true that the great majority of New Zealanders do have a roof over their heads, it's increasingly the case that it's one that they're renting because the cost of buying a home has risen far beyond their reach. A recent documentary has highlighted the problem. 25 years ago, three-quarters of Kiwis lived in their own homes. Now it's 64% and falling. Low interest rates, limited supply and immigration have driven up house prices. Restricting foreign ownership of residential property has been tried in other countries. I'm Norman Gamble. I'm the chair in public finance at Victoria University in Wellington. Switzerland's probably one of the classic examples of pretty much banning any foreign ownership of domestic property. So there is a sensible economic argument that says if lots of foreign investors, because there's money slewing around in the world looking for a good home, if lots of these foreign investors are looking to put their cash into New Zealand, if it then forces up the price of property so that people can't afford to live anymore, you should think about what's the right way to allocate your domestic housing stock. Critics insist that foreign investors have had only a small impact on the cost of property. But New Zealand's Trade Minister David Parker says the restrictions aren't just about price, but fairness. We think that some of the difficulties that are rising in politics around the world are driven by an insecurity of middle-class citizens in their own country who feel that their interests are being sold out to the interests of this super-wealthy cohort. New Zealand's uh, Trade Minister David Parker ending that report from Phil Mercer in Wellington. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm Julian Marshall. Europe remains a magnet for migrants prepared to make the perilous journey across the Mediterranean from North Africa. There were more than 200 deaths on the Libya to Italy route last month and add to that number now about 90 migrants who in the early hours of this morning appeared to have drowned when a smuggler's boat capsized off the coast of Libya. Most of those on board were Pakistani and the boat was headed for Italy. The latest loss of life in the Mediterranean comes a day after Frontex, the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, launched a new operation to assist Italy in border control activities. Operation Themis, as it's known, will continue to include search and rescue, but will also have an enhanced law enforcement focus. And in another departure, migrants will now be transferred to the country coordinating the rescue. Frontex spokesperson Isabella Cooper. 
every search and rescue operation is coordinated not by Frontex, but by the relevant rescue coordination center. So every country that has a sea has one rescue coordination center uh, that is responsible for diverting uh, any boat, any vessel that is in the area uh, to provide the rescue. And it will be that RCC that will be coordinating it that will inform us where the disembarkation should take place. So what more do we know about this latest tragedy in the Mediterranean? Leonard Doyle is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. It appears that over 90 people have drowned um, as they were put to sea by smugglers, obviously in a boat that was unfit to go to sea and in relatively calm waters. So this is a pretty cynical operation by the smugglers. And indeed, so much of the economy of the country has become, you know, essentially an extortion racket for smugglers of the unfortunate migrants coming through and hoping really in vain for a better life in Europe because it's not really there for them anyway. So there's something going on in which people, there's a lot of missed missed, uh, messages here. Uh, The high number of um, Pakistanis uh, reportedly on board, is, is that something new? Well, it's a higher number for sure, and they've now kind of suddenly jumped into number three in the in the kind of terrible league table of countries trying to, people from countries trying to get to Europe. Bangladesh had been in the third place until, until not so long ago. Uh, but this could be an aberration or it could be due to, a, you know, smugglers suddenly figuring out that they can make a bit more money out of Pakistanis by selling them a bill of goods and offering them something that isn't true. What happened to those plans to sort of take off take on the, the, the smugglers uh, in Libya. I mean, there were even uh, plans, I seem to remember at one time, to actually bomb their boats. Uh, well, in some senses that has been happening in the sense that they've been picking up any smugglers' boats have been picked up by the European authorities and have been you know, burnt or taken away, taken out of the picture. But in a curious way, that's made it more dangerous because it's, put, it's given the smugglers fewer options, so they just get these dreadfully unsafe rubber dinghies and cram as many migrants as they can in and then just takes the smallest wave for that thing to capsize or to, to tip over. Migrants aren't in any way prepared for it and the seas are cold and rough, of course. And uh, this new operation being launched by Frontex, Operation Themis, is, is this a good, good news for migrants, would-be migrants? It's not a lot of good news for migrants in this story, I have to say, because you have great um, inequality in the world and people are really suffering, whether it's from economic problems or climate change taking away their lands and crops, and they're desperate for a better life and they're seeing and dreaming about it on social media. Um, more barriers to migration, really, you know, it's not really what we think is the right way. We're much more interested in safe regularly, regular and orderly migration, where people have opportunities to apply for visas to fill the jobs that need to be filled in a booming economy. Um, putting more ships to sea, not necessarily the best way to do it, but if, if it results in saving lives, and hopefully it will, and in more distribution of that across Europe, then that's obviously something to be praised. Yes, I was going to pick you up on that. It means less of a burden for Italy, does it not, at the very really least? Really important. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The Italians have been extraordinary in the burden they've, they've taken, and it's had a really deleterious impact on Italian politics. It's given it's given kind of lots of oxygen to the extreme right, and uh, as it has across Europe. So in a way, this migration issue really is, isn't helping a lot of people. The, the poor unfortunates who take the journey end up being extorted, tortured, or sold into slavery quite often, or in this case, drowned. And it has a really nasty impact on politics as well.
That was Leonard Doyle, spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration, speaking to me from Geneva. Now, it's a case that has been gripping the United States for weeks. Larry Nasser, the USA gymnastics doctor who pleaded guilty to molesting dozens of girls under his care and was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. At the latest sentencing hearing, the father of three of his victims tried to attack Nasser in court. Randall Margraves asked for time alone with him in a locked room and lunged at Nasser after that request was declined by the judge. I would ask you to, as part of the sentencing, to grant me five minutes in a locked room with this demon. I have would a feeling. Would you do that? I, I, that is not yes how or our. No? no, sir, I can't. Would you do give that. me one minute? I, you know that I can't do that. That's not how our legal system well, works. Sound of court security tackling and restraining Randall Margraves after he lunged at Larry Nasser. So, in a highly emotional trial like this, what's it like to be the lawyer for someone accused of horrific sex crimes? Dan Damon's report starts with testimony from some of the women Nasser assaulted. I too was sexually assaulted by Larry Nasser multiple times at multiple appointments. But my hate towards you was uncontrollable. Because no one believed. Larry Nassar, I hate I you. And the reason everyone who heard about Larry's abuse did not believe it is because they did not listen. They did not listen in 1997 or 1998 or 1999. In the midst of all these adults who I was scared of, Larry, you were the only one I trusted. In the end, you turned out to be the scariest monster of all. You'll be familiar with the name Larry Nasser, the former doctor for the USA Gymnastics team, who pleaded guilty to sexually abusing young women in his care over several decades. Last week, he was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison after a parade of his victims came forward to testify in a Michigan courtroom. The judge in the case, Rosemary Aquilina, was visibly moved. And Larry Nasser was beyond redemption, she said. All of this was broadcast live. At one point, the judge commented, the world is watching. Indeed, Judge Aquilina became an overnight celebrity of sorts. Many called her a heroine. Another person in the courtroom found herself getting the wrong kind of notoriety. Shannon Smith, who was Larry Nasser's defence lawyer. In a way, almost everyone in that courtroom became a media star. Um, certainly, Larry Nasser has so much publicity and um, so much attention to him that the prosecutor has been applauded for doing her job. The judge has been applauded for doing hers. I think what's really unfortunate is that the defense attorneys have been criticized more than anything else compared to anyone else who played a role in the system. I spoke to Shannon after Larry Nasser was sentenced. Why did she decide to represent a man accused of some of the worst crimes imaginable? And was she fine with being a devil's advocate? Did she think the trial was conducted fairly? The emotional tone of the entire case was so heavy that it's difficult for anyone to comprehend what anyone in that courtroom was going through, including the judge. A lot of that testimony by the young women was very powerful indeed. Um, Some of it indeed more damning, we could say, than uh, the cases that were actually tried. Did that surprise you? 
You know what? It did surprise me. And honestly, one of the things that I think is important to consider is that the defense only knew the stories of nine of those women. And I was shocked that many of the women who came in and gave their victim impact statements had stories that were far more compelling than even the nine that were charged. And there was a point where I asked the prosecution, why didn't you charge based on some of these women and you picked the ones you did? One of the points made about the victim impact statements was that it was in some ways therapeutic for the young women. Do you think that's the case? You know, to be honest with you, I can't speak for how they feel. But one of the things that I think is alarming is that many of the women who spoke went on and on about how they did not realize they had been victimized until the case came to light and until they were asked to come in and speak. And so there were many women who had been fine, not thinking anything had ever happened to them, but because of the hype of the case, I think came to believe they were victimized when possibly they had not been. When you talked about mob mentality and the fact that some of the defense attorneys had been attacked, what did you mean by that? People have questioned how I can be a mother and represent such a vile person. And quite frankly, it was very obvious that many of the people involved in the case did not understand our role in the system. There were some complainants that during the sentencing viciously attacked me. I remember how absolutely stunned and confused I was to be sitting there being questioned by a grown woman about this monster molesting me as a young girl. I looked back at my attorneys, these incredible heroes who are honorable, diligent, empowering warriors. But then I looked at you, Shannon, as you so aggressively questioned me and wondered what possessed you to defend this man. What made you waste your hard work in law school on this despicable case? At the end of the day, I am never going to apologize for being a zealous advocate. I am never going to apologize for cross-examining a complainant on the stand to show what I need to to properly defend my client. So one of the things I was criticized over is you asked really tough questions. You accused me of being out for money. You made it sound like I was lying. But that's my job. People say I'm a horrible mother and a horrible person. I simply don't care. That's just my role in the system is to be an adversary. At the end of the day, I think that justice is accomplished when the system works. That was uh, Shannon Smith, uh, lawyer for Larry Nasser, speaking to the BBC's Dan Damon. A quick word now about NewsHour Extra this weekend. After decades of war, the Taliban are still openly active in over 70% of Afghanistan. That's according to research done by the BBC, which we heard about on NewsHour earlier in the week. In fact, the Taliban have gained territory in the past few years as they've expanded into areas that they'd lost to NATO troops. So with a military solution as far away as ever on NewsHour Extra uh, this week, Razi Rikbal is discussing whether it's time to talk to the Taliban. You can find it on air on our website or download the podcast. Just search for BBC NewsR Extra.
A reminder of our top story this hour, the US Congress has released a controversial Republican memo alleging the FBI abused its surveillance powers during the election campaign. Leading Democrats say it risks provoking a constitutional crisis. Uh, David Rivkin, a former Department of Justice official, told Newsar he expects to see a thorough investigation after the memo's release. It was a great deal of procedural irregularity in the context of a very sensitive process that has had some concerns about its legitimacy by civil libertarians. So you would need to be bent over backwards to continue to defend the legitimacy of this process. All I can tell you, it looks bad. It needs to be investigated. For God's sake, let's not pretend that this is some kind of a partisan exercise. One of the headlines this hour, the U.S. military wants to develop new low-yield nuclear weapons to counter the threat posed by Russia. This is Julian Marshall with News Hour from the BBC World Service. A piece of sporting history will be made at the upcoming Winter Olympics when Africa makes its debut in the bobsleigh competition. The team of three women are also the first Nigerians to qualify for the Games, along with another athlete who will take part in the skeleton event. Their preparations included a training camp at Lake Placid's Winter Sports Centre in North America, where they were joined by our sports news correspondent, Alex Capstick. We're the Nigerian women's bobsled team. We're the first team from the country of Nigeria. The first team from the continent of Africa. And the first team to be represented in the Winter Olympics in the sport of bobsled. In Pyeongchang. <laughs> They're known as the Ice Blazers, going where no African has gone before. The pilot and driving force behind the continent's first-ever bobsleigh team is Sean Adigan. She started the venture from scratch in 2016, even building her own makeshift wooden sledge to practice with. Sat in the garage, got some wood, went to the hardware store, bought some, like, pot handles and drawer handles and some screws and nuts, bolts, and just started drilling until it made sense. Hey, that was much better. Mm-hmm. Hey, that was nice. Is that what you felt? Yeah, like I felt like it happened sooner. Yeah. But then I didn't do Sean, who competed okay. for Nigeria in the sprint hurdles at the London Summer Olympics, lives in Houston, Texas, where she recruited Akuma Amaga and Ngazi Amwe. Just over a year ago, the pair knew nothing about the sport. Now they take it in turns to sit behind the driver and act as brake men. But Akuma especially finds the prospect of hurtling down a twisting, icy track at breakneck speeds a little daunting. After going to Whistler, when that's the fastest track in the world, it's like, OK, this sport is actually pretty dangerous. You know, like people can get seriously hurt. You know, you doing bobsled. So that was the first time I had experienced a crash. And I was like, mm, this is, you know, a little bit scary. Ready. Ready. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. Even though they're first-generation Nigerians, they were born and raised in the U.S., comparisons with the Jamaican men's bobsleigh team at the Calgary Olympics three decades ago are inevitable. That story inspired the movie Cool Runnings. 
You know, it's funny that people always bring up the comparison because it's really honorable to say the least that 30 years later people are still singing their praises and to say that we are along that same path of what people consider to be legendary is really humbling and it's, and it's an honor to receive. I watched it and I was like, I just thought it was hilarious, the things that they had to go through. Yeah, there's a scene in it where they're actually training in the, in the bathtub. Yeah. Uh, with their coach barking orders out them. Have you done that yet? You, no, no, we haven't done that, but we, we have our wooden sled, which is pretty similar, and it's just a, another way of practicing while not on ice, and so I think that's pretty cool. Their last run before heading to Pyeongchang was very slow. A few observers up at the start gates were clearly unimpressed. The Nigerians qualified for the Olympics because they're the only team from Africa and they managed to complete five races. But not everyone believes they deserve their place. Unfortunately, I can't stop people from feeling however they do, but I think the vast majority, they know that this was started not because we wanted to bring any type of light to ourselves, but more so because this was much larger than us, and that we really wanted to give something very special to not only a country, but a continent of Africa. That report from Alex Capstick. And uh, back now to our top story, the release of a previously secret Republican memo that accuses the FBI of abusing its powers. The document says the FBI used an unsubstantiated report uh, to get a warrant to spy on former Trump adviser Carter Page uh, towards the end of the presidential campaign. But how significant is the release of this memo when looked at from a historical perspective? Kerwin Swint is a professor of political science and the director of the School of Government and International Affairs at Kennesaw State University in the United States. So, is this a big deal? Well, it's really a stunning development. It's one political party trying to protect the president whose administration is under investigation. And the charges they make in this memo uh, are explosive. They accuse the Justice Department of abuse of power that, if true, could ultimately uh, result in criminal uh, complaints against the Justice Department. It's amazing. And I suppose the ramifications are probably heads falling. It could be. I mean, let's remember, it is a partisan memo. So we're going to hear the other side, the Democratic Party in Congress has their own memo that they would like to release. And then more consequential will be next month when the investigator, the inspector general of the Justice Department releases his investigation. That's an official investigation of what the Republicans in Congress are alleging. So we'll see if he agrees with them or not. Can you think of any episodes in recent American history that come close to this? Well, I think it reminds a lot of people of the Whitewater investigation during the Clinton administration, which partially led to investigation that led to an impeachment of an American president. And then, of course, Watergate is the other obvious parallel. No, that could possibly lead to two prosecutions. But as you say, we'll have to wait until a report in March uh, before any are confirmed. Yeah, we will. Uh, and that could uh, conceivably lead to uh, firings or criminal prosecutions of some sort. But the FBI, of course, is saying that this is misleading, that the facts are different. And of course, you would expect them to say that because they're implicated in this memo. But I think we'll have to wait and see how the facts sort themselves out. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, quite a head of steam had built up uh, ahead of the release of this memo. A lot of the contents have been trailed in advance. Is it, do you think, engaging people outside 
government in Washington, D.C.? Well, I don't think it has very much up until now. Uh, the investigation of Russian collusion has been going on for the better part of the year. Um, and occasionally there will be a big flourish. You know, the special counsel has indicted one or two people. But I don't think the average person has really followed it that closely. But this could change that. These kinds of revelations, if they're substantiated, could uncover things that could be tremendously impactful on, on the government and on Americans. Such as? If it's true that the Justice Department has abused its power, that they have used the powers of the government to illegally follow a political party, uh, American citizens, that could be very consequential if the government can really do that to American citizens and cover up the reasons that they're using. That was Cohen Swint, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the School of Government and International Affairs at Kennesaw State University in the United States. And uh, this just in, uh, a White House official says there's been no discussions or considerations about firing Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who, um, if you recall, was one of those named in the memo. That's it from this edition of NewsHour. From me, Julian Marshall, and the rest of the team in London, goodbye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.